You're listening to audio from Redeemer Anglican Church in the urban heart of Richmond, Virginia. We are a parish committed to gospel formation for missional presence through seven essential practices. Telling the biblical story, embracing a new identity in Jesus, finding belonging in the church community, cultivating virtue through redemptive habits, understanding our context in this current cultural moment, laboring in renewed vocations for the common good, and reordering our imaginations through beauty in the arts. To learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. Our first reading this morning comes from Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. You can find it on page 982 of the Black Bible in front of you. Just as a reminder, we say this each week. If you do not have a Bible, please take one of these home as a gift from our church to you. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. The word of the Lord. Now please stand for the reading of the gospel. Our gospel reading comes from Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, which you can find on page 809. This is the Holy Gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to St. Matthew. Glory to you, Lord Christ. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, Lord Christ. Please be seated. Well, good morning, church. Good morning to you all. Uh, For those of you who are new, welcome to Redeemer. If we haven't had a chance to meet, if you uh, started being a part of this church over the summer, then we don't really know each other. Uh, My name is Dan. I am very grateful to still serve here as a pastor. It's good to be back. Um, Thanks, y'all. It is, it's, uh, it's so good to be home. Our family just returned from a three-month sabbatical uh, on Monday. And while we enjoyed our time of rest, it is, it's oh so good to be home. Um, the homesickness was really setting in towards the end. Those last kind of days and weeks were a lot of uh, each of, member of our family at various moments kind of looking at each other going, can we go home yet? <laughs> we love the city. We love our neighborhood. We love our church. We love you all. Um, this is like, I feel like breathing a deep sigh of relief. Like it is so good to be back here with you. Um, today, we are going to begin a new sermon series on the first section of the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter five. Uh, one of my favorite um, theologians, someone that I look up to, I would love to grow up to be like this person, uh, the British theologian John Stott wrote, the Sermon on the Mount is probably the best known of Jesus' teachings arguably the least understood and certainly the least obeyed. <laughs> so that's a, good, that's a good start. The Sermon on the Mount begins in Matthew chapter five. And it begins with this section that is commonly called the Beatitudes. It's where Jesus gives this list and every list uh, begins with blessed are the fill in the blank. And then he goes on to say something about those kind of people. 
And Jesus begins his most famous teaching with this list of sayings that are obviously not true. Obviously not true, at least to our eyes and ears. The word blessed, or if you uh, grew up reading the King James Bible, blessed, uh, that begins each stanza in the Beatitudes is this translation of a Greek word called makarios. Makarios. Makarios is a notoriously tricky word to translate. It, it doesn't really have an exact English equivalent. It means something akin to lucky or fortunate or happy or congratulations. Or if you're Australian, like good on you. Uh, it means something along, along those lines. In each stanza, Jesus names a kind of person that our present society and culture does not value or desire. And he calls that kind of person lucky, fortunate, happy, blessed. Are you poor in spirit? Are you broken, run down, exhausted? Do you feel like giving up? Congratulations, you get the kingdom. That's how the Beatitudes go. The Beatitudes are obviously not true yet. They're obviously not true yet. And so the invitation of each of these Beatitudes is to live in the upside-down, inside-out, paradoxical kingdom that God is establishing through the Spirit of Jesus in the world right now. And so we're going to call this series Paradox Manifesto. This is the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, Paradox Manifesto. What we're going to see today as we begin is that before the invitation of each one of these Beatitudes comes a prior and greater invitation, a meta-invitation, if you will, which is to become an apprentice of Jesus, an apprentice of Jesus. Now, as we begin, let me say a prayer. Heavenly Father, I pray that right now the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts would be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. All right, so if you lived 200 years ago or before, you would find that contrary to our present moment, almost nobody lived in cities, like almost nobody lived in cities. Rather, most people lived in small farming communities with a very small village at the center of that community. And the growing up experience in one of those places was not anything like what it is today. Today, you attend formal school, you do kindergarten all the way up through 12th grade, uh, if you make it that far. Um, maybe you go to college. Maybe you do graduate school, maybe you do postdoc work, and then you enter the workforce at the ripe age of 42, put in a quick 23 years, and then retire at 65, right? Some of you are on track for that. Well done. Um, you win. Rather, in those days, growing up uh, was quite different. You grew up first watching and then joining in the work of the household, cooking, cleaning, repairing broken things, planting seeds, raising animals, harvesting crops, fixing the roof. Whatever your parents were doing, that's what you were doing. Work wasn't something that happened far away. Work was something that happened around the household. Your parents didn't leave to go to work. Work happened all around you. And once you reached a certain age, maybe 11, 12, or 13, right around that zone, your parents would make a very important decision for you. For you. Your parents would either begin training you to do the family business, whatever that was, or they would apprentice you to a master craftsperson of a different trade, maybe a blacksmith or a tanner or a cobbler or a baker or a seamstress, something like that. And the assumption was, like the baked-in assumption was, in order to learn any kind of tradecraft, you need to apprentice under the tutelage of a master. That's the assumption. And even though today... Okay, time travel back with me today. In our present society, the way we go about raising children and getting jobs has changed. 
The way in which all people truly learn and grow to master a skill has not changed at all. Practicing under the apprenticeship of a master is still the best way to learn absolutely anything. It doesn't matter whether you're trying to solve algebra problems or learning to read or working on your jump shot or playing the cello or just trying to become a better listener. (laughs) The best way to learn, hands down, is to apprentice yourself under someone who is better at that thing than you are, a teacher, a coach, a conductor, a therapist. You get the idea. And the reason this hasn't changed at all is because human beings are still every bit 100% as much human as they've always been. And the Bible has, to my knowledge, the best explanatory power for why human beings work this way. Maybe you've heard a better explanation. If so, let me know. But to my knowledge, the Bible explains how humans work the best. The biblical story begins with human beings made to learn from God through practice. In the story of Genesis, God places human beings in a garden and he gives them practices to live out. Practices of cultivating the earth, naming the animals, making love, having children, raising families, eating food, creating culture. And God doesn't give humanity beliefs to believe. He gives them practices to live, a way of life that they are invited into. And through what we call the fall into sin, where everything goes wrong, estrangement from God and themselves and each other in the world comes not through malbelief, but through malpractice. Human beings do not believe wrong things about God first. Eventually they do. But first, they simply don't obey. They do not practice rightly. And God initiates redemption for humanity by giving a subset of humanity, the chosen people of Israel, the law. And what is the law? Well, it's a new set of beliefs. No, it's a new set of practices, right? But Israel does what? They fail to practice the law. And so God practices it for them. God becomes a human being in Jesus, and Jesus fulfills the law, which is to say his practice of life was perfect. And through Jesus, God is transforming broken humanity into a new people, a new humanity, learning to practice life God's way. And we call this new people, the new humanity, the church. That's what the church is. It's the new humanity, the new human beings that God is making in and through Jesus. So back to our question, why is apprenticeship the best way for human beings to learn? Answer, because human beings are creatures who are formed and deformed by their practices. So a philosopher named James K. Smith who puts it well, he writes, one of the most stubborn myths about modernity is the notion that religion is something you believe rather than something that you do. Religion as a belief system was this like invention of the Enlightenment that reduced Christianity to a set of superstitious propositions precisely in order to get rid of it, discard it. And this in turn shaped the story that we all tell ourselves about secularization. We think we are secular because we sloughed off those like superstitious beliefs and we are now like cold, hard, rational people. There's just one problem with that story. Religion was never just about belief. Judaism, Christianity, Islam, all of these are faiths, not simply because they involve propositional claims about supernatural entities, but because they enfold believers in a way of life, conscripting them into a narrative carried out in a repertoire of rituals that inscribes a posture that we bear on the world. Now, if tracking through that 
absurdly long quote from a philosopher was a little tricky. Here's the one sentence summary. Faith is an embodied practice that transforms the way you inhabit the world. Faith is an embodied practice that transforms the way you inhabit the world. And what we're going to do with our remaining time is we're simply going to look at the first two verses from Matthew chapter 5, right before the Beatitudes start, and we're going to examine what does it mean to be an apprentice of Jesus. Now, we're going to do this from a couple different angles. Angle number one is the move from the crowd to becoming a disciple or an apprentice. The second way, second angle is going to be examining two different strategies for staying in the crowd, because we all have those. And then we're going to conclude with some practices to get us started, okay? So first, moving from the crowd to being a disciple. We're going to examine a couple phrases from these first two verses. Phrase number one is, verse one, seeing the crowds. Why is the crowd there? Well, it's kind of obvious. They want to hear Jesus teach. They want Jesus to feed them. They want Jesus to heal them. At this point, Jesus is becoming a famous rabbi. They're there to see the celebrity. This is the big guy on the scene now. They want the benefits that Jesus has to offer. And let's recognize together, not everybody is in the crowd, right? Like not everybody turned up to hear Jesus that day. Most people went to work or stayed home or went out for drinks with their friends. Like people did other things that day. And some of them were part of the crowd. Some of them turned up to hear Jesus. It costs something to be in the crowd. Not a lot, but it costs you a little bit to be in the crowd. You've come to church. Well done. It cost you something to be here today. Not a lot, but it cost you a little bit. You had to get up. You had to move. You had to exert a little bit of effort. Well done. No shame in this. There are crowds of Americans, crowds of Richmonders, who want the same kinds of things from Jesus. A little bit of teaching, a little bit of spiritual insight, a little bit of healing, a little bit of provision. Jesus, can you make my life better? Right? It's not a terrible question. Some of, maybe some of us here kind of want the same thing. Maybe that's why some of us are here this morning. And there's no shame in that. There's no, I'm not slamming anybody. Jesus sees the crowd. He loves the crowd. He heals the crowd. He feeds the crowd. Jesus loves every individual in the crowd. But Jesus knows that not everybody in the crowd is ready to become his apprentice. And so on this particular day, Jesus leaves the crowd and he goes up on the mountain. These are not throwaway words. The author, Matthew, is alerting the reader, us, that something important is happening here. The Gospel of Matthew is the most Jewish-focused of the Gospel accounts. And when Jesus goes up on the mountain, this is a very Hebrew moment. You see, Moses, the greatest prophet in the history of Israel, ascended a mountain, Mount Sinai, and there he not only received, but also brought back down and delivered the law of God to God's people. And now we have a Moses moment. A prophet greater than Moses is here. This is a new Moses moment. You might say, actually, it's a true Moses moment. And the author is letting us know, pay attention. God's prophet is about to give the law. So Jesus goes up on the mountain. Then it says he sat down. Again, not a throwaway phrase. Sitting is the posture that a rabbi would take to teach. I have often thought, why don't pastors do that? It'd be so much more relaxing. Like, can we get an armchair up here or something, right? Why do we stand to teach now? Historically, rabbis sit to teach. Jesus was a rabbi. And you've got to remember that at this point in history, 
Nobody thinks, oh, Jesus, the guy who's starting a new religion. Oh, he's the guy who started Christianity. Like, nobody thinks that. Jesus is an itinerant Jewish rabbi. He's a master of the Torah, God's law. And rabbis have disciples, followers, who are learning God's law from their master. Jesus is not the only rabbi traveling around Jerusalem at this time in history. He's not the only rabbi that has disciples. In this present moment, everything about this scene is normal for a first century Jewish person. You've got a Jewish rabbi, he's sitting on a hill, he's teaching, his disciples are gathering around him. Everything's normal. It says next, his disciples came to him. The word disciples is word Talmud, or if you, it's plural, disciples, you would say Talmudim. A contemporary equivalent of that word would be apprentice. And I find the word apprentice to be so much more helpful than the word disciple, because those of us who have spent significant time hanging around churches over the years have gotten very used to the word disciple. And so we don't think much about it. But the best way to understand what a disciple is, is a disciple is, is an apprentice. It's somebody who is studying under a master. The word Talmud literally means like those who sit at the feet of a rabbi. And so this is just a kind of a 30-second excursus. But when you read in the Bible about stories like Mary sitting at the feet of Jesus, this is not like a geographical statement about where she happens to be sitting. <laughs> this is a statement about her relationship to her rabbi. She is apprenticing herself under the rabbi. What was so uniquely unusual about Jesus was who he chose and who he allowed to be his disciples, his Talmudim. Normally, in first century uh, Jewish religion, only those students who had completed Beth Sefer, which is like kind of ages 5 to 12, sort of like Jewish elementary school, and then those who went on to complete Beth Midrash, ages kind of like 12 to 15, Jewish high school, only the top students from those schools would then be allowed to sit at the feet of a rabbi that they wanted to learn from. And the rabbi would grill them up one side and down the other, ask them all the questions to decide if they were worthy to become his disciple, his Talmudim. Now, this helps explain some very confusing parts of the Bible. And so this is, again, a little excursus, but... Do you, for those of you who have been around church for a while, do you remember the story of Jesus calling the first disciples? Jesus is walking along the Sea of Galilee. You've got Peter, James, and John who are there fishing. Jesus goes to them and says, come, follow me. I will make you fishers of men. And the text says immediately they dropped their nets and they followed him. And if you grew up hearing stories like that, you, you probably, like me, grew up thinking, I guess they knew that he wanted to start a new religion. I guess they wanted to help start one too. They're like, oh, there's a cult leader. Let's go follow him, right? Like, no. Jesus at that time is a Jewish rabbi. He goes to them and he says, come be a part of my Talmudim, which the equivalent for us today would be, you're a high school student. So high schoolers, I see you. There's a knock at the door. You go and open the door. There's someone from Harvard. And they say, we've heard about you. We want you to come study with us. Are you in? What would you do? Of course you're in. You would drop whatever you've got going on at the time and you would go and you'd be like, but I didn't even apply. And they'd say, it doesn't matter. Just come, right? When Jesus invites the disciples to be part of his Talmudim, their first thought would have been, but I didn't even apply. <laughs> and yet they're in. Typically in a group of Talmudim disciples, there would be one older Talmud 
we know that that was Peter. Peter was one of the disciples that was married, probably a little bit older than the rest. Then the rest of them would have been somewhere in their teenage years. John, likely the youngest, probably around 13 or 14 years old. The whole point of being a Talmud or a disciple is that you live exactly like your rabbi. That's why you go follow him. You're with him all the time. You treat people the way way he treats people. You make the same choices he makes. You love and befriend the people that he loves and befriends. You live fearlessly and bold the way he lives. You do every, you copy him. The Talmudim would live with their rabbi so they could literally know how to live in every single life situation. There are even these like hilariously kind of gross, weird stories about Talmudim disciples following their rabbi into the restroom just to see like, does he do a special prayer before he like relieves himself? It's super weird, but like that's the level of intimacy we're talking about here. They want to be just like their rabbi. They memorize his teachings so they can go teach exactly the way he does. The Talmudim are not simply there to observe. It's not like a freshman 101 biology class. They're not there to like take notes and get through it. They're there to absorb and conform their life in every minute detail possible way to be like their rabbi. To be a Talmud or a disciple is to enter a life of radical apprenticeship. To use more contemporary language, you might think of Jesus as an innovator and the disciples as early adopters. And I just want to remind you again, at this point in history, Christianity is not a world religion. There's no reference point for it. Nobody amongst the disciples or in the crowd is thinking, oh, Jesus is here to start Christianity. No, they all recognize that Jesus was a rabbi with a particular way of living, and the disciples were ready to learn to live like him. And this puts a whole new spin on the Great Commission. Some of you who have been around church for a while will remember Jesus saying to his disciples right before he leaves them, go and make disciples, right? Go make Talmudim. <laughs> You're, you've, been a, you've been my Talmudim. You go now make more Talmudim. You've been my apprentice, go make more apprentices. The commission has been carried out from person to person, from church to church across the centuries, and here we are 2,000 years later, and the offer from Jesus, the invitation from Jesus to come and to be his apprentice still stands. It's still on offer. It's still on tap. You are invited to be his apprentice, to shift from the crowd wanting Jesus to make your life better to wanting to conform your life to his, to become like him, to live as he lived. Now, before we say any more about what that looks like, let's do a little bit of kind of self-reflection for a moment and talk about some strategies that we have to remain in the crowd, okay? Because that invitation to apprenticeship is not one that everybody responds to. Most of the people in the crowd that day did not become apprentices of Jesus, And most people in most churches, in most places in the world today, are not yet ready to become apprentices of Jesus. So what are our strategies? Strategy number one, it's very simple. I'm I'm sort of like unfortunately and embarrassingly notorious for this, is what I would call belief without practice. Sort of, if you want a fancy word for it, you could call it functional Gnosticism. If that doesn't mean anything to you, forget it. Belief without practice where you believe things, but those beliefs have not worked their way out into habits and kind of like daily rhythms for you. Uh, and you and I do this in all kinds of ways. I mean, I, I'm, I'm terrible at this when it comes to exercise, right? Like the amount of stuff that I believe about exercise and the amount that I exercise are not the same thing. Like, y'all, I can give you like a 45-minute lecture on why lifting weights is good for bone density. But you know what I don't do? pick up heavy things, 
right? Because I don't want to. <laughs> it's hard. <laughs> the amount that I, right? We've connected. Um, the, the, amount, the amount that I know about a healthy diet and the food that I actually eat are just not, they're not the same, right? Last night we celebrated one of my uh, kids' birthdays. And uh, Rachel baked her famous chocolate cake. It's a recipe that her mom has made. It's been passed down through the family. So good. And I, along with the rest of the crew, had a bowl of vanilla ice cream with chocolate cake for dessert. And then when my son went to go get a drink of water, I finished his dessert, which he still doesn't know. So don't tell him. He thinks he just finished it and forgot. I finished it. Um, and then after the kids went to bed, I had seconds or thirds at this point. Um, and then as I was cleaning up the kitchen, every time I passed by the cake on the cake stand, you know what I did? I did what you do. I like pinched off a little bit, right? Which doesn't count as a slice because, you know, you get it. I don't know how much cake I ate last night, but I can talk to y'all all day long about what like complex sugars and carbohydrates do to the body. It doesn't matter. I'm still gonna eat the stuff, right? What I know and believe and what I practice have dissonance with each other. Belief without practice. Anth French anthropologist Pierre Bourdieu once said, belief is not a state of mind, still less any kind of arbitrary adherence to a set of dogmas or doctrines. Belief is a state of the body. Believing is something you do. Belief is something you do with your body. Now, if belief without practice is my first strategy, my second strategy is that I'm actually apprenticed to all kinds of other things besides Jesus. You see, there aren't two kinds of people in the world, the apprentices and the non-apprentices. So if you're thinking at this point, like apprenticeship just kind of isn't really my speed. <laughs> like I'm just not that kind of person. I beg to differ. You already are an apprentice of someone or something. It just might not have been consciously chosen. It might be your parents' vision for who you're supposed to be. And you might be 60 and still living that out. It might be a mentor that you chose because you saw someone that you really liked and you wanted to be like them. It might, as strange as it might sound, it might actually be an amalgamation of characters that you've seen in films or shows that just sort of showed you something that looked really desirable and good. And you've been trying to conform your life around whatever that vision or image is. It could be a brand, like a lifestyle brand that you just think, yep, that's me. I want things in my life to be like that. You know, many of the people in the crowd were interested in Jesus, but the problem was they were already apprentices to other forms of life that they weren't willing to let go of. This brings us into a couple different crises. I mean, crisis number one is a person who likes Jesus, enjoys listening to Jesus, wants to be associated with Jesus, believes things about Jesus, true things about Jesus, but who doesn't really know Jesus or want to follow Jesus and therefore struggles to love Jesus, is not changed by Jesus and receives, most importantly, no joy from Jesus. Here's the litmus test to see if you might be the kind of person who lives like a belief without practice kind of life. The Christian faith just doesn't hold any joy for you. You might believe it's true, but it's not joyful. If the Christian faith brings no joy, then you might believe in Jesus, but you're not his apprentice. And I'll explain why in a few minutes. Crisis number two, this functionally apprenticing yourself to someone or something else, the, the litmus test for this 
is, is not joy, but actually rather stress. You see, one of the reasons there are so many stressed out Christians is because there are so many of us who identify as a Christian, but then continue to live out some version of the American dream. Like you haven't replaced one way of life with another way of life. You're trying to walk both paths at the same time. You've apprenticed yourself under two different masters that don't agree with each other. You ever tried to hike two trails at once? Doesn't work, right? <laughs> you ever tried to wear two sets of clothes at the same time? It's uncomfortable. You're double booked and it's stressing you out. You must actively surrender the American dream in order to fully embrace the way of Jesus. Only then do you begin to experience some of the promises that Jesus gives, that his yoke is easy, his burden is light. The litmus test is stress. If you find all this talk that we do here at Redeemer about apprenticeship and practices, spiritual disciplines, liturgy, like if all of that kind of stuff just sort of makes you feel tired and stressed out, it might be a sign that perhaps you have not yet let go of the thing or the person that you are in your heart truly following. Litmus test number one is joy. Litmus test number two is stress. Now, listen if you can. The paradox of the cross is the gateway through which you may leave behind your joylessness and your stress and become an apprentice of Jesus. And here's why. The cross if you can imagine this in your mind, is an inversion of what happens at the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on the mountain, the crowd gathers in admiration, and the disciples sit at his feet to learn from him and apprentice under him. At the cross, Jesus goes up to the mountain, Golgotha. The crowd does what? Mocks him, jeers at him. And what do the disciples do? They run away. They don't want to be with him anymore. Jesus, the famous rabbi, met the worst end of any spiritual leader ever. No one's ever been canceled the way Jesus was canceled. No hero has ever been torn down the way Jesus was torn down. And he did it on purpose. He told his disciples, this is why I'm here. And then he told them it was going to happen ahead of time. Why? So that the rabbi could become like his own followers to become like us. This is crazy. All rabbis want their disciples to be like them. All celebrities have followers who imitate them and mimic them and emulate them. All great leaders and heroes have people who follow them and are trying to be like them. But only Jesus became like his followers. God became like us in the incarnation of Jesus where God himself becomes a human being. And then Jesus becomes like us all the way to the bottom when he takes our sin upon himself on the cross. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 reads, For our sake, he, God, made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Our rabbi loves us. Our rabbi has become like us. And now our rabbi invites us to love him back and to become like him to become his apprentices. This is why apprenticeship to Jesus always brings joy. There's a logic to this. Apprenticeship to Jesus always brings joy. You know why? Because it brings you into close, intimate, personal relationship with the one who loves you. That's why apprenticeship always brings joy. It also always brings peace and not stress 
because there is clarity and relief to being singularly devoted to one person and not torn between competing masters. Any of you ever tried to date two people at the same time? Did it work? It did not. Do you have terrible stories about trying to do that? Of course you do. Share those at small group this week. It'll be fun for all of us, right? <laughs> there is a relief when you just pick one. <laughs> there is a clarity and a focus to only serving one master, only apprenticing yourself to one way of life. This is why we read Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9 early in the service. I'll read, it for, I'll read it for you again. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And then there's the promise right after that. And the God of peace will be with you. The promise is that if you are practicing the way of Jesus, you're going to get peace thrown in because of the singularity of focus that comes when you give yourself an apprentice to only one way of life, only one person. We're going to end with this. Um, we're going to talk about just some practices that we do here at Redeemer just to get us started. This is kind of an overview, but I want to recenter us on why we exist as a church together. Uh, there's a 19th uh, century Austrian philosopher named Ludwig Wittgenstein who wrote, we, I love this, we practice our way into believing. Our practices sustain us in dark seasons when we can't believe. The idea here is that apprenticeship means relating to Jesus, not only as Savior, as Savior, but not only as Savior, also as Rabbi, as Master, the one who is teaching you how to live. Jesus, the one who teaches you how to be a new kind of human being. I mean, an apprentice of Jesus is someone who can honestly say, Jesus is teaching me how to be human. I'm learning how to be a human being from Jesus. And this is why here at Redeemer, we describe our life together as practice-based. Have you ever wondered that? If you flip open the inside cover of your liturgy and you see the way we talk about ourselves as a church, we talk about gospel formation for missional presence. We talk about the seven practices of the church. And that might've struck some of you as strange. Practices, why are we talking about practices? What about beliefs? Practices are embodied beliefs. Here they are. We practice the story. Practicing the story of Jesus in the Bible, reading the Bible, memorizing the Bible, studying the theology and doctrine and teaching the Bible, getting the story inside of us, and, and honestly, getting us inside the story, learning to see all of life from inside the meta narrative of Scripture. Practicing our identity, our identity bound up in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. Baptism, the very first identity practice of any follower of Jesus. And then from there, beginning to practice our baptism the rest of our life practicing trust and peace and security, living as if we are beloved, adopted children of God, because we are. But living that way takes practice. You've got to practice your identity. Practicing belonging with the people of Jesus, the church, small groups, roommates, friendships, confessing to one another, encouraging each other, challenging each other, holding each other accountable, laughing together, grieving together. Because in Jesus, we are family. But being a family takes practice. I spent three months with five other human beings. That's it. Being a family takes practice. <laughs> the Murata family learned that this summer. <laughs> Practicing virtues, embracing redemptive habits, partnering with God in our own renewal. Let me say that again. Partnering with God in our own renewal. Reading, studying, praying, fasting, giving away money, serving others, volunteering, giving our lives away as we become people with Jesus-like character. You don't become someone with Jesus-like character when you get baptized. You become someone with Jesus-like character as you practice 
as you apprentice yourself to the way of Jesus. We practice our context, the place Jesus has put us in. It's the only one we get. We live in Richmond. That's, the, that's your place. You might wish it was a different place, but it's the one you have. We live in 2023. You might wish you lived in a different time. I do. Lewis and Clark left without me. I'm still mad about it. But this is the time that I get. I only get to be faithful now. So I must become a student of my own time and my own place. What are my neighbors doing in the civic life of our city? What's happening in culture and society? We've got to be fully present here in the now. And we have to practice that. It doesn't come naturally. We practice our vocations, the work God has given us to do as students, as parents, as laborers, in the marketplace, in the classroom, in restaurants, at home, even on the internet, wherever we are, wherever we are doing work. We practice our vocation. And then finally, practicing imagination, the mystery of the beautiful love of Jesus. And we access it in poetry and art and film and music and food, not just consuming, but creating, contributing to the beauty of creation as co-creators with the Lord. These are seven fundamental and eternal aspects of being human beings. They include belief. Belief is baked in to every one of these. But there's so much more than belief. They're not limited to belief. Maybe a better way to say it would be they are embodied beliefs. And Rabbi Jesus is inviting you to become his apprentice and begin a life of transformation through practice as you become a new human being through him. So let's end with some questions. Have you joined the crowd? That's where all of us begin. (laughs) No shame in being a part of the crowd. That's where you got to start. Are you a part of the crowd? Have you turned out to see Jesus and to see what benefits he might have to offer? Question number two, are you still in the crowd? And maybe how long have you been in the crowd? And are you ready for the shift from crowd to disciple, from observer to apprentice? Have you let go of other masters, other apprenticeships to other teachers or other visions of the good life? And if so, have your beliefs become practices? Have your beliefs moved from your brain to your body, to your calendar, to your bank account, to your work, to your relationships? And as you practice, are you experiencing joy and peace as a follower of Jesus? If not, why not? What might have gone wrong if the joy or the peace is absent? Listen, seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. Let's be those who go to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, gracious Father, we are so thankful that you have come to be like us in Jesus and that you, Jesus, became like us on the cross. Thank you for loving us so deeply and so well. Would you help us to respond to your love with love of our own? And would you help us to now apprentice ourselves to becoming like you? Help us by your spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. To connect with our team or to learn more about our church, visit RedeemerRVA.org. We look forward to knowing you. Go in peace.